Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Uh, I want to invite our children to Children's Church. If you want to head out the back, the teacher will meet you. And uh, they'll get to study the scriptures in a more age-appropriate setting. Let's start with a word of prayer. Well, our Father, we are very grateful for your covenant love, how you have bound yourself to love us, to make us lovable, to make us your people, to love us despite who we really are, and to transform us into who we can become. Lord, we thank you for the marks of indelible grace in our life and the ability, Lord, for us to gather together in this place and to sing of such great truths. What a joy. What a privilege. Lord, we pray for our, um, our friend church, um, Palmdale Reformed Baptist. We pray that, uh, that, that uh, Pastor Barcellus this morning is handling your word well, that uh, his congregation is hearing from the scriptures exactly what it is that you want them to hear, the message that you want to speak to them. Lord, I pray that, uh, that Rich is, is faithful to handle the word correctly. And Lord, we pray for uh, the church that they might find a, a permanent worship place. Um, Lord, that they would uh, continue to make disciples, that they would reach Palmdale, bring more people in, um, not because they need to fill pews, not because they need to fill seats, but, Lord, because the command that you've given us is to make disciples. And so we pray for um, Grace Reformed Baptist, their, their success in making disciples as well. And, Lord, we want that for ourselves, too. Would you give us the ability, would you give us the, um, the chance to bring in the harvest, uh, to make disciples and to train them. And we ask this uh, that you would do that through the preaching of the word this morning, that you'd confront our hearts and our minds, conform us to the image of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, you heard Jim read it. Very famous parable this morning. Um, typically, it's called the parable of the prodigal son. And uh, I think that's a horrible name for two reasons. First of all, how many sons were in the story? Two. So it's not the parable of the prodigal son. There are two sons. And second of all, that word prodigal, um, when you think of prodigal, you probably think of somebody who's run away and has come back. That's how we usually term it. That's usually what we think of it. The word prodigal, I looked it up in a dictionary. It means wasteful or reckless extravagance, giving or yielding profusely, lavishness. So when we talk about prodigal, we're talking about somebody who gives abundantly who spends recklessly. And so that's where the name came from is because they focused on the younger son. And the younger son, he took his inheritance and squandered it. So he was the prodigal. He was the one who spent the most. So when we look at the parable, what we're going to find out is the one who spends the most is not the, the younger son. It's the father. The father is the prodigal. He is the one who spends lavishly, expends everything he has. And so I think a better way to call, or a better name for this would be the parable of the love of the prodigal father. Um, because it's two sons, and, and really the father is the prodigal. So as we go through this parable, as we work through this story, we're going to see basically the, uh, three things. Rebellious sin, obedient sin, let's do on that one for a second, obedient sin, and finally the father's heart. And so that, that's, that's what we're going to look at this morning. Before we get started, I want to say that Tim Keller has written an excellent book called the Prodigal God, and he really does an excellent job unpacking this parable. And when I was getting ready for it, I was like, how am I not going to just stand up here and mouth what Tim Keller says? Well, the way I figured it out was Tim Keller ministers in downtown Manhattan. 
the, the issues that he and his people face are very different than the issues that we face here. We're on the wrong side of the coast, different economic social structure. So Keller did a great job with it, but I don't think it would preach well to us, if you will. So what I'm, I'm, I'm indebted to Tim, and I'm going to you know, maybe touch on some of the things he did, but I'm not re-preaching Tim Keller. Um, so that's good news for all of us, um, really. So how does the parable begin? Remember, we're in, we're in the middle of, of chapter 15 here. Remember last week, we saw two other parables, and Ramey read one of them this morning. And I'm, I'm really glad you did that, because those two parables do set this up. As a matter of fact, the last, like chapter 13, well, maybe 14 and 15, really link together and come to a head in this parable. So last week, I was really having to rein myself in because I wanted to preach this last week. <laughs> And I kept telling myself, no, you've got to stick to just these two parables and let it set up. So um, think, when you're reading through this, think of Luke putting all of these stories together, leading to this parable, because this is the clearest, most detailed explanation of what he's been working on, which is the Father's heart. It's God's heart to reach and save the lost. And so we get to this story, and this is the longest parable that, that's in this section. It's the most detailed, and it's, uh, for me, it's the most emotional. It really does grab the heart because you're looking at the relationship between a father and his sons. And so that's, that's where we're going to go with that this morning. So it starts, uh, there was a man who had two sons. The younger said to him, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Now, at that point, I picture Jesus' audience audibly gasping because what this meant in the context of Jesus speaking it, in the context of Luke writing it was, in those days, the elder son got a double portion. He would get twice what everybody else got. This man has two sons, so that meant the elder brother would get two-thirds of the inheritance and the younger brother would get one-third. But they got it when dad died. So for this young man to come to his father and say, give me my share of the property that's coming to me, what he's saying is, Dad, I wish you were dead. You haven't died yet, and you're getting in the way, and I'm sick of waiting. Would you just give me my stuff? And so that's what he tells his father. Essentially, is, I wish you were dead. Just give me my stuff, and I'm out of here. That was shocking. And a first century audience would think, Either the dad's going to just beat him about the head and shoulders or send him away, say, you're not my son anymore, get out of here. That would be a reasonable response. There's no requirement that he give him anything, especially when he's this rude to say, dad, die, essentially. The next thing that comes out of Jesus' mouth is equally shocking. And he divided his property between them. So the patriarch, the father of this family, does the unthinkable. He divides his property between his sons. He's not dead yet. Now, in, in the first century, it's not like he went and cashed in his IRA. His IRA was out in the field. Um, we hear later that the older brother is going to come in from the field, come in from the farm. So what that meant is this man's wealth, his position was tied up in his property. It was tied up in what he could grow in this field. So when, he's, when his youngest son comes and says, give me my due, Give me what's, what my inheritance is. The only way for his father to do that is to partition off part of his land and sell it. Sell off part of his land and give it to his son. And it's interesting because the son says, give me what's due. When Jesus says he divided his property, do you know what word he used for property? Bios. 
We get biography or biology from that. Bios is translated for us as life. Now, to be fair, the word bios is not typically used here to mean he took a part of his living essence and gave it to his son. It often meant his, not just his property, like, you know, I have this trinket shelf, but part of his livelihood, part of, of his capability to produce. He took his bios and he divided it and he gave it to his son. That's as equally as shocking as the son asking for it. What this man has done is above and beyond. He's given to his son. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property on reckless living. I like the way the King James says it, and riotous living. What happened was he took his money, he took everything he had been given, and he charged off to a far country. He went as far away from his father and his family and his homestead as he could, and he just had a blast. He squandered it, spent money left, right, and center, just like it was going out of style. No, no thought of the future, no thought of what comes next. He went to New York City. He went to L.A. He connected with a couple of rock bands, got a couple of good drug dealers, had parties every night, prostitutes lined up, just had a blast is what he did with his father's money. So he tells his father, give me what is due to me, and he goes and indulges himself. He went to a far country and engaged in reckless living with no thought of the future. Here's, here's the thing is when we look at the younger son here, we're seeing somebody who is rebelling against the father, who is engaged in what would be called rebellious sin or sin of disobedience. I am going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live the way I want to live. And the picture here, I think, is... Um, this idea of he's being free, he's being set free. My father has always had these rules and these restrictions on me. And gosh, it's been so, so smothering that I have to do these things that dad wants me to do. I want to go out and do what I want to do. So the, picture somebody jumping out of an airplane and going, I'm free. I, I'm not bound by any rules or anything anymore. I'm floating in the air. I'm free to do as I please. Are they free? <laughs> They're not even free for a minute because there's a rule, there's a law that is still governing them called the law of gravity. There is a law of aerodynamics, which is saying that you can only fall at such a, a certain speed because of the wind resistance across you. It feels free. I have jumped out of an airplane, um, and, and now I'm free. I can just float. Um, if you've ever seen Rescuers Down Under, there's, it's a cartoon, and there's this great scene where this, this kid has got this giant bald eagle that's a friend of his and it, this is the kind of thing I think of is he the bald eagle is flying with him and carrying him in his talons and drops him into this river and he's kind of surfing and he goes flying off the edge of this cliff and there's a big waterfall and he just throws his arms open and, and falls and he's got this big smile on his face and it's felt so free and that's that's that idea is this boy has taken everything his father is giving him and just indulged every desire he's ever had he is, he is rebelling against his father in the most dramatic way possible. That's the sin of rebellion. That's, the, that's a rebellious sin. That's a sin of disobedience. I'm going to do what I want until reality kicks in. And when he had spent everything, 
a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he, he's run out of money. Um, there, there's nothing left to be, be had. He's been kicked out of the hotels he's been staying in. Uh, nothing left to be had. And then it says that there was a severe famine across the country. So basically what happened is the economy is tanked. Back then, the, the, the ability of the land to produce really drove the economy. So he had all this money, he spent this money, and then the economy collapsed. And now what's he going to do? Where's all his friends? The people who were drinking and partying with him, the, the people who were selling him drugs, where'd they go? Money's gone, we're out of here. Gravity just kicked in. He, he just saw the ground rushing at him. He, he's now almost to the bottom of the waterfall, thinking, there are shop rocks down there. Now what do I do? So he lets himself out to um, a landowner, and the landowner puts him out in the field to feed the pigs. Now, Jesus doesn't start this by saying this was a Jewish boy, but you can kind of imagine the audience is hearing this in the terms of the Jewish law. He's gone to a far country. He has left the covenant people of God. He has headed out into a far country, and now he's to the point where he's hanging out with pigs. It doesn't get any more base, any lower than this. But it does. He's starving. So as he's slopping the pigs, he looks at the pods that they eat, and he wishes he could have one. I've always wondered what word is behind pod. You know, what, what, what's going on there? What the word is, this is the only place in the Bible it occurs. What he's talking about is the pod from the carob tree. It's a long, thin pod with brown seeds in it. And they were common in Palestine and Syria for the feeding of the poor because they were kind of everywhere. They didn't taste particularly great. They were a little sweet. And in modern day, we use carob to replace chocolate sometimes. But they would also be used to fatten up the swine because the swine would eat them. So what this man has done is he's now come down to the point where he is sitting with the pigs, slopping the pigs, and he's envious of the food that the pigs are eating. That's how far he's fallen. This is where the sin of rebellion, the sin of disobedience will take you. Is you may ride high for a while, but at some point it's going to let you down. It's going to release, and you're going to be stuck because you've squandered everything. So he's sitting there with the pigs, and he's got nothing to eat, and nobody will come by and feed him. After his, his generosity to all his friends and, and party animals, nobody will come by and feed him. And so he's envious of what the pigs are eating. As he's sitting there, verse 17 says, but when he came to himself, and that is just a perfect translation of exactly what the Bible, the Greek says there. It, he came to himself. He was not with himself at a certain point. And now that he's hit rock bottom, he has come to himself. He has opened his eyes and, and honestly assessed his situation. He's been lying to himself before. But now he's sitting there with the pigs and he says, wait a minute, look at where I am. What have I done? He finally has opened his eyes and seen what a rebellious lifestyle will do. And so he forms a plan. He's, he's come to his senses. He's, he's beginning to think again. The drugs and the alcohol have weared off, and, and now he can begin to, to process. And he says, hang on for a second. This isn't, I haven't always lived like this. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here in hunger. And, and the hired servants were not household slaves. A, a, a household slave would live with the master of the house. They would be part of the household. Um, it's not like American slavery where they had their own quarters and they were beaten and hated and everything. The, the household slaves could be professionals that owed the, the loan, landowner money. 
So this, this is not that position. This is below that position. This is somebody that the landowner would hire, bring him in and say, I'll pay you this much money, and then you go away. And so the person would, would come in, and they would labor for the day, and they'd agree to a wage, and they'd go home. So this is not even part of the household. The, the man says, even the lowest person in my father's household had more than enough bread. They ate pretty well. So here's what I'll do. I will go and I'll say to my father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be even called your son. Treat me as one of those. I'll come, I'll work in your household, and then I'll go away. I won't even be part of your house because what I have done is so dishonored to you. That's not a bad plan. This is actually a pretty good idea. I'll go, I, I, I know one person who is generous, who pays well, who's honest to his workers. That's who I'm going to go hang out with. I'll see if I can get a job there. I, I, I can't go to my father and say, Dad, I, I really blew it. Can you take me back? There's no way. He's not, he's not going to do that. But I can go and get a job with him because I know what kind of a person he is. So that's his plan. That's his, his, his goal here. He set this up, and so he heads off. I don't know how he did it. He had to get some food together. Maybe he you know, took some of the pods from the pigs and, and took them with him because he went to a far country, and now he's got to come back. So as he's coming back, he's heading back home. He's got his plan in place. And while he was still a long way off, his father sees him. So his father must have been outside and seen the young man walking and somehow recognized him from a great distance. And what's the father's response? The father's response is not, boy, that, that kid, he shows up here, he's getting a talking to. Or he better not step foot on my property, you know, get the shotgun out, I'm, I'm, chase him off. The father's response is he sees his son, the, the son that he loves, the son that has turned away and, and been lost to him, and he goes charging after him. He runs out to meet him. Before the kid has even come onto the property, dad's running out to see him. Now, this is a man with two grown children, two grown male children. This is an older man. In, in first century culture, he had certain gravitas, certain dignity about him. Gentlemen in this position who owned property, who had you know, this much age, who had you know, successful sons, they did not run. Children run. Beggars run. Gentlemen in this position do not run. For him to run, he'd have to pick up his robes because they wore long robes. He'd have to pick up his robes and run across the land. And that's exactly what he does. He's not hesitant to go meet his son. He sees the object of his love, and he picks up his skirts, and he runs out to meet him. And so his son has got it all rehearsed. I'm sure as he's walking, he's been going through this. Okay, this is how I'm going to say it to dad. I'm not going to look at him. I'll look down, and I'll say these words. So dad is approaching him, and he, and he starts his, his speech. He says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your servants, and he's cut off. His dad doesn't let him finish. Stop. He hugs him, he grabs him, and he loves him, and he tells his servants, get a robe and put it on him. In other words, go get one of my robes, one of my best robes, and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and, and shoes on his feet. This guy probably still reeks of the pigsty. He's probably covered in head to toe in dirt from the long journey, and the father doesn't care. He doesn't see him as an object of scorn. He sees him as an object of his love, and he wants to shower him with his blessings. So he puts the best on him. And then he says, 
quickly bring the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. The fatted calf. In our culture, we have so much meat, we don't even think about it, right? You go to McDonald's and get a hamburger. You just go to Dickie's and get four pounds of meat if you want it. You can eat a lot. In that culture, they didn't eat much meat because you had a flock of sheep or a herd of goats, and you didn't go out and kill them on a regular basis. Every couple of days, chop one up to eat it. They provided milk. They were your source of income. They had to reproduce. They had all of the, there was so much tied up in that, you, very, you ate very little of that. So most of the meals were mostly vegetables and just a little bit of meat in it. And, and I've seen that in third world countries. When we went to Burma, they had a wok about this big, and it was filled with rice, and in the center, just a little handful of stuff in the middle. And so they would eat mostly rice and just a little bit else. So the fatted calf then, what this was, is this is one particular piece of livestock. You'd take one calf out of the herd, and this is the one you would feed the most. You would fatten it up. You would get it bigger. It would be set aside for a special purpose. It was going to be the one that you were investing in to celebrate. So imagine, like in the old days, remember we used to have uh, Christmas accounts at the bank, and, and you'd always put money into the Christmas account, and then a couple of weeks, you know, or a couple of months before Christmas, you'd get the money out, and you could go spend it and, and buy presents. The fatted calf is that Christmas account. The fatted calf is an Easter account. This is where you have been putting your money, investing it into this one calf, fattening it up, getting it ready to eat, so that when it's time to celebrate, you kill this calf and you celebrate. Now, we know fat is, is terrible, and it will give you congenital heart failure and you know, all these terrible things. Back then, they ate so little of it that when you had meat that was fat, it tasted rich and full. The, the, the fat in it was good. So this is the fatted calf. This is the bank account that Dad's been saving up into. And he says, go kill the fatted calf. We're going to celebrate. He says, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is the father's response to the rebellious son. This is how the father responds to a sin of disobedience when the, when the child comes back. So if you know somebody who is in the younger child's position, somebody who's rebelled against God, who's rebelled against the family and has gone astray, pray for them. Pray for them a lot. Pray for them often because this, this is showing us there's hope that they could come back. They could turn. And then be ready to forgive. Can you be like the father? Can you forgive and welcome them home? Um, I, I would hope so. I, I don't know that this is the point of this is to tell us be like the dad. Um, it's more like to say, no, you're like the boys. But there's hope here. God can restore. God can bring them back. He can, he can rescue them from even that. So the sin of disobedience is I'm going to find my identity in what I want to do. I am not going to find my identity in what my family has done, what my family believes. I'm going to go invent it for myself. I'm going to rebel against everything that's been done and said. I'm going to go figure my own way out. And it's going to cost you. It, it will cost you. So that's the youngest son. The youngest son is now home. And the household is, is booming. The music's loud. There's laughter. There's the smell of food cooking. There's dancing. 
you, as the older sun comes in from the field, you can picture the house with the lights on and just this ruckus going on. And he says, what's happening? So he calls a servant over and he says, what is going on? And the servant tells the older brother, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Your, your brother who was dead to you has, has come back alive. Your brother who was lost to you has now been found. Do those two terms sound familiar? Ramey read one of them. Or no, it was in both of them were, were in the, the quote he read. From the parables last week, those are the same things that happened. That sheep that had wandered off to the shepherd, it was as good as dead. He had no idea what was going on with that sheep. There was every reason to believe that that sheep that had wandered away was dead. There were tremendous perils out in the desert. So when he goes out and finds it, he receives not just the sheep back, but he receives it as back from the dead. The woman who lost the drachma, she couldn't find the coin, she then sweeps the entire house. It was lost until she found it, and then it was found. Same terms are here applying to the younger brother. The younger brother was dead, but now is alive. He was lost and is now found. So what does the, the older brother do? The older brother's response the older brother says, I'm so happy my brother's back. Let's go party. The older brother was angry and refused to go in. He comes home. He finds out his younger brother is, is home, and he's upset about it. This makes him angry. And he says, I am not going into party. This is not good news for me. This is bad news. He took a third of the inheritance and squandered it. And so he, he stands outside with his arms crossed, looking at the house. I'm not going in. This is the parable of the love of the prodigal father. The father ran out to the disobedient son and brought him in and, and, and brought him close to his heart. He was so overcome with love that he ran out to meet this son that was dead to him. And so what, he did, what does he do with this son? Does he send more servants out? Go tell him to get in here. This is ridiculous. No, father gets up from the table. He says, wait, he's, why, where is he? And he walks outside, and he comes to his son, and he, he begs his son. He says, son, please come in. We're having a party. Your, your brother's back. Please come in. It's time for our family to rejoice. We're together again. So this is what the father does. This is the father's heart. This is the picture of how God loves to seek and save the lost is he will go out and beg you, please come in. The disobedient has to get to the point where they've run out of everything that they thought was going to make them happy, and then they'll come back to their father. The older brother is the more dangerous of the two. And we'll see why here in a second. Listen to the older brother's response. He was angry and he refused to come in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed one of your commands, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Do you see what he just did? He doesn't address him as father. He says, look, you. Look, old man. I never disobeyed you. I never did anything wrong. I did everything you told me to. And this son of yours, he won't even call him by name. He won't even say he's my brother. He says, this son of yours, and you're being good to him? That's not fair. That's terrible. How can you do that to me? This is the sin of, dis of obedience. 
This is the, the son who didn't go and spend it all. This is the son who stayed with his father and said, Dad, I'm going to do everything you want. I'm going to labor to make sure this, this farmer virus survives. I'm here for you. Who is he here for? He's here for himself. The only reason he was obeying God, the only reason he was obeying his father and doing what his father said was, because I want the stuff. I want to make sure my investment is taken care of. I know I get two-thirds of this property. I'm making sure it's taken care of. So I have stayed with you, and I have done all these things, and you gave me nothing. I didn't even get a goat when my friends came over. But this kid, he blows a third of everything you own, and you, you kill the flatted calf for him. How unfair is that? So if the younger brother is the sin of disobedience, the older brother is the sin of obedience. The older brother is going to the father and saying, the exact same thing the younger brother said. I only want from you what I can get from you. I don't want you. So the reason I have been staying on the farm and working is because I know it's going to be mine one day. He doesn't have any respect for the father. The father comes in and, and pleads with him, please come in. And the, younger, and the older brother says, look, you, it's time for you to pay up. It's the same thing. Do you see? It's the same thing that the younger brother did. It's the same sin. And the reason that this is more insidious is because it looks more obedient. It looks like he's done everything the father's asked. He's walked with him. He's worked on the farm. He never disobeyed him, did everything he was told to. And yet, he can't stand his father right now. He's angry at him. It's possible to serve God and to not really care about him. That, that's the sin of obedience. Is Look, God, I'm going to do these things because I expect something out of you. And after I've done these things, you're going to pay up, right? It, 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 the idea is not, and let's put this in a little bit more context here. He's speaking to the Pharisees, right? That's what chapter 15 is. He's laying into the Pharisees about how angry they are that sinners come to Jesus. So when he looks to the Pharisees, he's talking to people who say, look, I know I'm in the covenant by grace. I was born a Jew. I thank God that I was born a Jew. I'm in the covenant by grace. They're not saying, I worked my way up to this. They're saying, Lord, you, you, you have saved me. You've made me part of your covenant people by the grace of being born to Jewish parents. And I thank you for that. That's great. But... I'm going to do these things. I'm going to obey you in these things. I expect a return on this. And when I don't see that return, I'm going to get upset. There's a, a, an apocryphal. In other words, it's not in the Bible. It's just kind of a made-up story. But I think it's a pretty good one to illustrate this point. Jesus is walking with his disciples, and he looks to them, and he says, pick up a stone, all of you. And so they all look around, and they, Peter says, well, I'm not carrying a big old stone. I don't know what he wants. He says, Jesus asked me to pick up a stone. I'll pick up a stone. So he walks over, and he finds a little pebble, and he puts it in his pocket. So there, I've done what he said. I have obeyed his command. I have picked up a stone. And then they take off, and they walk for hours. When they get to a certain spot, Jesus has them all sit down. He says, now take out your stone. And they pull the stone out, and it's turned into bread. And so Peter's got this little piece of bread, and he's, he's starving, but he's got this little piece of bread, and so he eats. And then Jesus, after they've eaten and they've talked for a while, he says, pick up a stone. And Peter goes, I get it now. Picks up the biggest stone he can get on his shoulder, and he walks. He says, I can't wait for dinner. This is going to be great. And he's staggering, and they finally get to the place where they're going to sit down, and Jesus says, okay, everybody sit down. Take out your stone. And he's looking at it like it's on my shoulder. He says, now throw it in the river. 
And so they chuck it in the river, and he says, now walk. And Peter says, wait a minute. What's going on? And Jesus said, who did you carry the stone for? Me or you? The point was, when Peter thought he was going to get something out of it, he went big. When he thought he was doing it simply for Jesus, he did the minimal amount that he could to be considered obedient. That's what the elder son is doing. Is He's saying, I have done what I need in order to be obedient because I expect a return on it. I didn't do this, Father, to serve you. I, I'm doing this to serve me. So when you squander everything on this son of yours again, I'm angry. What he's thinking, what he may be thinking at this point is, okay, we took the property and we divided it in, into thirds. I got two-thirds, he took one-third, and he went and lost it all. Now he's back. Now when you die, we're going to do that again. And what that means is he's going to wind up with more of your property than I had, even though he squandered part of it. I did the math on this. It comes out to uh, four-ninths versus five-ninths. If, if I had a whiteboard, I could do the math for you, but it'd be boring. Trust me. He, he takes a third, and then he takes a third of the remaining two-thirds, and that comes out to be a little bit more than the guy. That, yeah. So he's looking at it going, I'm not getting the payoff here, God. <laughs> I've been serving you. I've been doing everything you've asked, and I'm not getting it. The, the point here is, look at the father. The father is not a proposition of truth. He is not a theological construct. He is not some object to be looked to for, uh, for handouts. The father is a loving father who says, I don't want your obedience. I want your heart. I don't want your stuff. I want you. So when the son returns, the disobedient son returns, he says, that's what I was after. I don't care about the third of the property. That's stupid. It, it, it'll come back. I can grow more. I wanted you, my son. So he sees his son going. He runs out and he embraces him and says, I missed you. I love you. I want you to be with me. And then the older son shows up and says, I'm not going in there. I'm not going through this. This is ridiculous. I have done every little thing. I, I read my Bible every day. I pray every morning. I tie that church. I go to church every Sunday. I do all of these things. I'm not going in to celebrate. I expected a return on this, and you're giving it away. In other words, I don't want you, God. I want your stuff. I don't want the relationship. But the father comes out and says, son, please come in. Come and celebrate. This is tremendous. Don't you see what this means? Don't you see what kind of person I am? I'm the kind of person who would forgive somebody who squanders so much. Shouldn't you delight in that? And then finally, we hear the father's heart at the very end. When the, when the, younger, older, or the uh, older brother refuses to come in, he says, Son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It's fitting to celebrate and to be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It's, you have always been with me. Everything I have is yours. He's not telling the son, stop obeying me. What he's saying is, you've always had me. Look at what kind of father I am. Look at the kind of things I would do. Why would you not be happy with me? Why would you not want more of me? The stuff can be replaced. So this is the, the, the danger for us is 
I don't think there's too many of us in this room that are really going to be the disobedient son who goes and squanders everything. I don't think that's a huge temptation for most of us. Mostly because we're all older and have already done that. (laughs) But the danger here, and, and this is where I think it really comes to home, is there is a real danger for us to tend towards older brother syndrome. There is a real danger for us to, say, to begin to think, well, yeah, I'm saved by grace. I got that. But now I, I have to do Bible study every morning. I'm going to pray every morning. I'm going to uh, tithe to the church. I, I'm going to give to other ministries. I'm going to listen to Christian radio all the time. And why am I going to do that? Because God will be good to me then, right? I'll, I'll do these things, and that means that he'll be gracious to me. He'll be good to me because I've done all the things he's asked. That's older brother thinking. Father, I, I never disobeyed you. I slaved away. The word there is, is, could be translated, and some of them do translate it as slaved. I slaved for you. Does God want his son to be thought of as a slave? He doesn't want that kind of relationship with him. What he wants with us is the love that he's expressing. He wants us to come to him and to love him and be with him because of who he is, not to serve. The service comes out of a different place. That's the danger of having an older brother approach to religion, is we think, I I don't really, you know, God is a nice person and everything, but I do these things because I expect to live a good moral life. And if I live a good moral life, then, then good things will come my way. There's a couple problems with that. What happens when good things don't come your way? What do you do? Where where does your mind go? One of two places. God's not good enough. Why Why is he being mean to me? He's not good enough. Or, number two, desperation. I'm not good enough. I didn't do enough this week. I missed my Bible study. I forgot to pray this morning. And now bad things are happening to me. Who's at the center of that entire equation? Me. I am in charge. I am in control. Instead, because he, he tells his father, look, you didn't kill the fatted calf for me. You never gave me a, a, um, even a, a goat to celebrate with my friends. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. He, he got, the father doesn't argue. Oh, come on. Last week, you got a goat. He doesn't argue with me. He says, you're right. I never gave you that. But you had everything. Everything of mine is yours. You get more of me. So no, I didn't give you a goat. So what? Don't you want me? Don't you want to come into the feast with me? Don't you want to come and celebrate with me? He wouldn't call the the younger brother his, his brother. He says, this son of yours. But the father says, son, he addresses him as son. He doesn't say stranger or or mooch or anything like that. He says, son, all that I have is yours. And he says, as for me, it's fitting that we celebrate because your brother was dead. One of the things that older brother syndrome tends to do is dehumanize people. People become a means to an end. I'm going to go be nice to this person because when I'm nice to them, then God will have to be nice to me. Do I really care about that person? Eh, maybe. People become a means to an end. So what you hear in the older brother's speech is, look, you, this son of yours, It's all pushed away from him. And the father says, son, this brother of yours. Older brother syndrome dehumanizes people. 
They become a means to your ends. But God is standing there saying, no, I want you. I want your heart. I want you to trust me. And I want you to love people genuinely because I love people. I want you to celebrate with me when somebody who is lost is found, not because it's going to cost you anything, but because it's, it shows what kind of a God I am. The danger of older brother syndrome is it can creep up on you. And, and people are far too complex to say, I never do that or I always do that. It never works that way. I think I just contradicted myself. It's always on a spectrum. There's always times when it'll start sneaking in. When you start thinking, well, God is just this kind of concept that I'll read about in the Bible. What has, what has God been doing through this? Jesus has been showing us all through this. God has his heart going out too. And he's drawing people in. He wants people to come in. He's begging you, please come into the feast. So how is it that if, if the father in this picture, in this parable, is God, how did God come running out to you? How did God step outside of the house and come to you and say, please come in? He did it because God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus has, has come to you and, and is begging you, please come into the feast. He's come in and he said, you know those times when you get older brother syndrome and you start thinking about people that way? I'll pay for that. I'll cover that. It'll be okay with you, you and the Father because of me. Come on into the feast. It's a powerful picture of the overwhelming love of a father who deeply cares for his people. And this translates into how God loves the world, how God loves lost sinners. It's his heart to have them come to him. That's the younger brother. He also has this great desire for saved sinners to come to him. He doesn't want your Bible study. He doesn't want your tithe. He doesn't want you to utter prayers. What he wants is your relationship. He wants you to be his child. He says, I love you deeply. I care tenderly for you. I want you to know me as a personal and loving father who would come rushing out to grab you who would come outside the door and beg you to please come in. Why? Because I love you. That's what I want from you. Therefore, once you get that in place, then you go, why would I not pray? This is the Father who loves me. Why would I not go to him in prayer? You would look at this and say, he sent Jesus out to grab me from that pigsty and drag me in. He sent Jesus out into the field to tell me to stop working and come in and party. Why would I not read the scriptures and want to know that more? He has poured out his love on lost sinners. Why would I not serve other people? I get to watch what God does in that. Do you see the difference? I'm not doing it because I expect X, Y, and Z from God. And then when you, dis when, when you don't get X, Y, and Z, you can be disappointed and you can even tell God about it. But you're telling a person who loves you and not doubting yourself or doubting him. You're just saying, I don't understand why you didn't do this. Why didn't that come out? Lord, what, what's going on? It's a wholly different attitude. So what, what Jesus is warning us here is watch out for older brother syndrome. I don't, like I said, I don't think we're too much in danger of younger brother syndrome. I don't think any of us is tempted to go squander our 401k partying down in L.A. But I fear that since we're a, a church of mature believers, we're in danger of embracing an older brother approach to religion. 
And I don't want us to do that. Jesus doesn't want us to do that. Luke doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to be better disciples who see God not as a proposition, but as a living, caring father who desires to have you with him. Isn't that a better approach? Isn't that a better thing? Let that kind of thought, let, meditate on that and let that bubble out into your life and see if you don't say, well, why wouldn't I go to church? Why wouldn't I read the scriptures? Why wouldn't I pray? I get more of this rather than I have to go to church, I have to pray, I have to do this because I want more of that and I got to go to him to get it. That, that's where Luke has been leading us up to this parable. This is where he's been taking us very slowly and very carefully. It's to this very emotional, very powerful uh, picture that Jesus paints for us. So I, I just want to admonish you, if you have detected older brother syndrome in your life, come into the feast. Come on in and join us. Let's go in and party. We've killed the fatted calf. You get to partake in that. And that doesn't mean stop doing anything religious. It's more complicated. It means do it for the right reason, which is you want more of God. Do you want more of God? If you don't, and you be honest with yourself, if you say, no, I'm good, pray and ask God, would you open my heart? Would you liven my heart? He delights to do that. He ran out to the younger brother and threw a robe on him. The brother hadn't even apologized yet. He got the words out of his mouth, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I don't deserve to be called your son. And God wrapped him in a robe. So you don't have to be perfect. You can come to God and say, I, Lord, I don't even really know if I want you. Would you make me want you? Or let me know if I do? And see if that doesn't impact and empower your Christianity, and empower your work with Christ, to know him and want him more, with marks of indelible grace. I just love that phrase. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, you have rushed out to bring us in. And, and Lord, we confess, because we're well-educated evangelical believers, we know that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Lord, we know and we confess that. And that is the first step. That is the, the coming to ourselves and, and, and heading home. But Lord, don't let us come in from the field and, and throw a temper tantrum. Lord, would you be sure to tend our hearts, to make us desire to know you more? Lord, would you open our hearts to, to want more of our Father who loves us, to see Jesus coming to beg us to come in, and to know that that's tremendously good news. Lord, I confess for my part to bigger brother syndrome on, on occasions more than I wish. And Lord, I pray for our church. Um, I, I am assuming that all of us are susceptible to that. Lord, would you deliver us all as a body of believers in Jesus Christ from religion? Save us from our obedience. Lord, grant us repentance for the things that we do right for a wrong reason and draw us in to know you more. Give us more of you, we pray, Jesus. In your name, amen.